listeners, thanks for downloading our podcast, or uh, thank you for not unsubscribing us in the meantime. We are back. This is the Filmed in Canada podcast. We talk about Canadian movies. I'm William Lee. And I'm Chris Avery. Chris, good to see you again. We are a slowly reopening podcast. We're returning to regular operations again. After what feels like, do you think 17 years or 40? It feels like more than a lifetime for sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. I am um, slowly climbing out of my pandemic malaise and... uh, it's good to, good to sit in the same room with you, even at this uh, uh, exaggerated distance. Yeah, uh, it, I've missed talking about movies, but you know, I think I speak for a lot of people. It's been really hard just to get any sort of momentum on creative projects. I have not been working on a sourdough starter. I have also been trying to shake off the malaise of being in the midst of uh, a global pandemic. My concentration's not great. My focus isn't great. Um, yeah, so it's it's been hard to assign time to think creatively, to be creative, when it just seems tough just to get through a regular workday. So true. Um, around the time of the Vancouver International Film Festival, which was uh, largely online, so that back in September, we did try to do a recording. We talked about the films we saw at VIF, uh, you and I. Uh, from our own homes uh, and uh, it, it just the the technical results of doing that the way we did weren't great so I, I didn't end up uh, using that material for uh, for a podcast episode but uh, I did appreciate you making the time to talk about movies yeah and uh, I think you and I both uh, are hopeful that however the world shakes out in 2021 in September of next year that VIF will offer the opportunity to watch Uh, movies from home even when it is safe to go back into the theaters because uh, it's a pretty fantastic way to do it and you don't have to line up in the rain and you don't have to assign like three hours to lining up and getting seated so if they offered that again it would be fantastic. I I would find it hard to believe that they would not offer that in the future. I think that's the way most uh, festivals are approaching uh, their use of technology now so um, yeah I, I think we can expect that to be a uh, part of it in the future, and I, I welcome it. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I Me wasn't too. I wasn't sure this time around uh, how I felt about it, but I'm a believer now. I I think <laughs> I think uh, accessing new movies at home is is really uh, ideal. Agreed. And and incidentally, I when I bought my VIF membership, um, I opted for the uh, upgraded option, which was the gold subscriber, which actually gives me access to uh, content throughout the year. So they have oh. they have new movies on there right now, uh, which I've uh, taken advantage of. Is the new David Fincher movie Mank is that uh, available there, or is it like a curated? You don't know what's. They'll send you an email to tell you what new streaming movies are available? Yeah, you get. I get a regular email about what's okay. on there. I don't think they can have it on their platform, is my guess, because it's I promised see. to Netflix. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But what I did watch on uh, on the VIF, uh, through the VIF app, was uh, the new Alex Gibney documentary, uh, Totally Under Control. Would you think the word harrowing is a good description of that documentary? Yeah, nail-biting at times. Like my stomach was just soured. It was really hard to watch. I was thankful for watching it at home because there were times when I would skip back 
just to rewatch the segment to, to understand the information that had just been uh, presented. Not because it was hard to follow, but at times I couldn't believe what was offered. Yeah. Do you want to tell the, uh, the ones of listeners at home what the uh, premise of the documentary is? Well, Alex Gibney uh, kind of charts the the U.S. response to the pandemic uh, in parallel to what happened with South Korea. And uh, the, um, the takeaway is that what was markedly different in the United States was that politics got in the way of scientific advice. Right. Uh, and, and it is a damning portrait of, of a political system that is not serving its people. It's, it's really infuriating to watch at times. And, and also the, the suggestion of the levels of scam going on. It yeah. is even even for something like dealing with a pandemic, that there's still scamming going on. That there's still an effort to the, the people that it's about greed and not compassion. That you know that message to me was just so loud and clear that it is still about capitalism and people wetting their beak as opposed to like oh well let's make sure that a quarter of a million plus people don't die. Let's not think about the money. Let's think about the science and helping. You would hope. And infrastructure. You would hope that was the and drive, assistance. But it's not. But it's not. In, in this case, what, what, what he presents is, is, is just uh, incompetence and, uh, and deliberate scamming. The other thing that was useful for me, though, was just that I've lost track of time this year. And, and just to see it recapped in uh, two hours, to just remind myself like, what happened this year was, was valuable. It was, it's, it's just history written in the moment. I think it enables a little bit of self-reflection and a reminder of, of what we've been through and, and also what's at stake. I, 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 I do feel a little bit worn down by everything. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and when I go out sometimes, you know, I, I do wonder like, what is, what, if all these efforts are worth it and I see other people letting their guard down and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like saying anything cause I don't know. I don't know if it really matters if you wear a mask or not. But the documentary, I think, it reminds us that um, you know that there are real stakes and and our actions are having an impact. So. Yeah, I, it's interesting that I saw it before the uh, U.S. election. You saw it after, but we both have to digest the fact that 72 million people thought that that monster did an okay job. 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. That's hard for me to digest. People who voted that way, I don't think they are. I don't think they're making a statement on the performance of that administration. I think it's a statement on an alternate reality that they want to subscribe to. If, and then the population just gets to be collateral damage for that delusion? I think it's about, if it's not happening to me, it's not real. Probably that's a truth that everyone is dealing with, is when we look at the numbers and the stories, do we believe that we have an impact on this? Or is it something that's happening to other people? Right. In totally uncontrolled. I mean, it takes the example of uh, the the Princess Cruise Line, uh, the the cruise ship that was docked in in Yokohama, Japan, and how people were in separate quarters, but it spread, and it made the analogy that well, that is like an apartment building in New York. Like right. you could be in separated suites, and you don't know what's happening to your neighbors, but it's spreading. Right. And I think that I think that really drives it home that you need to know that it's in your neighborhood. Um, so. I just think I think the public messaging should be a bit more direct about like where it's happening. Speaking of pandemics, speaking of plagues, what are we talking about today? What oh, movie? I like how you led into today's <laughs> movie. 
right? We didn't we didn't mention what movie we were talking about, except mm-hmm. in the title of the podcast. Episode. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you suggested, it, I think, but we're going to talk about Blood Quantum, which which is a new movie. Um, I guess mostly available streaming because I, I don't remember, mm-hmm. I don't recall if it got a, a theatrical release before the shutdown. Uh, yeah, hard to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Blood Quantum. It did. It did premiere in 2019 at TIFF, uh, but I am unsure if it got a theatrical in the early spring of 2020 before everything shut down. Yeah, I accessed it through. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to plug Cineplex, but I accessed, <laughs> I accessed it through uh, Cineplex online. So uh, it is on Shutter, which is a streaming platform that is exclusively for horror movies. Mm. But I think I watched it on Prime. So Blood Quantum, it takes place in 1981. It's about a zombie outbreak. We follow the characters in Listeguge in Quebec. It is in Quebec. Well, that's, that's, I think that's the location, but it's the Red Crow Reservation. And where's that? In, it's in, I think that's the name of the town where they shot it. Yes. Plus Campbelltown, New Brunswick. Yes. But I don't know if they ever say where it is in Quebec. Yeah, I don't remember. I think it just Red says Crow. Red Crow They said Red Crow. Yeah. Okay. So Red Crow is a setting, right? That's right. And that is meant to be like in Nova Scotia or do you know? No, in Quebec. It's in Quebec. Everyone speaks English though in this movie. That's true. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's set in Quebec. The, the, the cast is uh, primarily First Nations or Indigenous uh, actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the, the, the wife is from um, mm-hmm. Norway. So Michael Greyeyes is Traylor who is like a sheriff in the community. Mm-hmm. His heritage is uh, Plains Cree from Saskatchewan. But he's been in uh, True Detective, Fear the Walking Dead, and movies like The New World and Passchendaele. And did you know that he is um, a dancer? I did not know that, no. Yeah, he went to Kent State and went through the fine arts program, and he has founded a, a dance company called Signal Theatre. So he's a professional dancer, which is wild. El Maya Tailfeathers uh, is Joss, trailer's wife, or uh, estranged wife. Yeah. <laughs> is Arthur totally ex? Oh, there, okay. There you are, divorced. Okay. And uh, she's from, uh, her heritage is Blackfoot and Sami. So uh, that's uh, the Norwegian indigenous peoples. Yeah, a few, in 2018 at the VIF, I saw Sami Blood, which was um, a feature film about um, a, a coming-of-age story of a young Sami girl in Norway who is similar to the residential school system in here in North America. And it was the first time I'd ever um, heard of the, the Sami people. I think we all think of Norwegians as tall, blonde people who, who fish a lot. But uh, So that was interesting that uh, got to see this, what the, the sort of Sami heritage um, in that film. El Maya Tailfeathers is also a Vancouver filmmaker. She did The City Before the City, which played the VIF probably 2016 or 17. And then her most recent film is a collaboration with Catherine Hepburn. No, um, Kathleen Hepburn. Kathleen Hepburn. So they collaborated on The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, which I think played TIFF in September of last year. Uh, Forrest Goodluck, who we saw in Indian Horse. He's also been in The Revenant, but he plays Joseph, Trailer's son. He's from New Mexico. Uh, Kiowa Gordon is Lysol. He was born in Berlin, but, uh, but was uh, but grew up in Arizona. And he's been in the Twilight movies. 
Uh, Stonehorse Lone Goman is... Oh, what a great name. Uh, he's the grandpa figure. I think his name is Gisigu? Gisigu? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, Gary Farmer is also in this. He's uh, been in movies like Dead Man, Ghost Dog, Smoke Signals, Powell Highway. Um, and Olivia Scriven is Charlie, who is uh, Joseph's wife. Uh, she Girlfriend. Girlfriend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's been a few months since I saw it as well. <laughs> Um, she uh, is from. She's born in Quebec. Uh, grew up in Ontario. She's been on Degrassi, The Next Generation. Uh, Stonehorse. There's not a lot on him uh, in the interwebs, but he is an MMA fighter. I believe that. And I, <laughs> when I told Paul that this morning, he's like, "Oh, I believe that. He looks like one tough guy." Yeah. Yeah. I um, initially I thought. He would have more of a, uh, of a, uh, more credits because it just seems like he's a guy who, who he just seems who like such have been a natural. A long yeah. Time ago. yeah, he's kind of like Mike from uh, Better Call Saul or um, Breaking Bad. He just has a, a face that you're like, oh yeah, this guy would be in, would be in movies for sure, and he has a real presence and an ease. So it's surprising that this might be his first kick at the can, um, and then Brandon Oaks. Um, was in Through Black Spruce, the Don McKellar movie that we saw a couple years ago at the VIF. And he was in Barnaby's first feature, which is Rhymes for Young Ghouls. The writer-director is Jeff Barnaby. He's also Micmac. That's right. Yeah, from uh, Lustiguge. Uh, so he uses his hometown, uh, his home territory for the filming. Yeah. And he so- wrote, directed, and did the score for this film. I'm always amazed when people do that. It's like, that's some John Sayles shit, you know, to be, to wear all those hats. sounds exhausting. Sure. And hard. Also a John Carpenter thing. And a John Carpenter thing. Yes, you're right. So in Red Crow, in 1981, signs of trouble start with them discovering salmon that had been zombified, that had been zombified. Which you see every day in a horror movie. (laughs) There's something about zombie fish that was really chilling to me. It was really innovative. I just thought, wow, I've never seen that before. That's pretty terrifying. Well, when nature turns on you. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, that, that's something to, uh, to take note of. Uh, also, when your food supply is poisoned. Yes. Yeah, so I think those, uh, I, yeah, to, to start there, I think uh, certainly sets the stage for something something dire to come. So the town slowly gets infected and uh, um, and Trailer and, and others, uh, you know, they, they do what they can to survive in the first act of the movie. Uh, and then we jump forward, is it six months? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and we see that the community has um, sort of built their own little fortified um, establishment that is run by the um, by the First Nations uh, leaders and um, and they are trying to eco to living they take in survivors as they find them but there's also a lot of suspicion about uh, about who sh- who they should uh, ally with and who they should offer help to and that's because the because white people can get infected and indigenous people can't um, you don't want to invite which is which doesn't mean you can't die from being eaten by a zombie but you won't become a zombie if you are bitten by 
They call them Zeds. Yeah. Okay, so we're jumping right into the details then. Oh. Um, I want to ask you a question since you, you pointed out that detail. When in the movie did the characters figure that out? Because um, that's something, that's a detail that I got from the plot synopsis, um, when, you know, when I'm browsing to see if I want to buy right. a movie, right? Or right. where else did I see it? Yeah, like I read ahead of time that it was something that affected um, the non-Aboriginal characters. But I, I couldn't recall the scene where the characters in the movie figure that out. I don't think there is a scene. I mean, there's a scene in the jail cell where I think trailer gets bitten or Joseph gets bitten. Joseph gets bitten yeah, and then one goes to the hospital. Yeah. But I don't think at any point it's been explicitly mm-hmm. said that Indigenous people don't become zombies yeah. if they're bitten. Like we encounter the Aboriginal characters along with some non-Aboriginal characters and, and what's different is that the non-Aboriginal characters are, being, are slowly getting zombified. Yeah. Um, now, I wanted, I wanted to look at the title and also the, um, the little quote that opens the movie, which I noted here. Um, now, had, prior to this movie, did you, have you heard of that term, blood quantum? No. no. And did you, do any, did you do research to find out what it referred to? I did. Okay. Um, now, the, the movie opens up with this quote that's on screen, which I will read out loud. So it, it quotes an ancient settler proverb. Take heed to thyself, that thou make no treaty with the inhabitants of the land. For when they whore themselves to their demons and sacrifice to them, you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of your daughters for your sons, they will lead your sons to do the same. Uh, so it took a long time for that to settle in for me because I didn't know how that related to the movie. Mm-hmm. So, it was, so it was after watching the movie, I had to research blood quantum laws and, uh, and then like, take another look at that quote to really understand what it all meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so historically, there was um, there was a system to measure how pure someone was uh, in in terms of their uh, their ab- Aboriginal ancestry, and and that was be- because of of laws granting uh, rights to Aboriginal people. But then it wasn't. It, it also seemed like there's a history of that being in play, but then not being respected, and uh, and it'd be a while before even. Um, um, Aboriginal communities that, that had some sort of self-government, that they would take that into account. Um, so there's, it's a sense of like how, how much of, of, of someone's ancestry is, is truly Aboriginal. I think in the sense of the movie, that's supposed to play into how likely they are to be infected by the, the zombie virus. Yeah, and I also think it plays into the fact that, um, that Joseph has made Charlie pregnant, and so she is Caucasian, he is indigenous, their baby would be, well, if you had to put a number on it, 50% blood quantum? Okay. 50% indigenous, 50% I, I assume white? Yeah, that makes sense to me. So would the baby not become a zombie if it was bit? Seems like the chances are 50-50. Right. Okay, so, this is a, so again, this is a thing that I feel the movie doesn't address, like that it, that it wants to raise this question but it doesn't address it because the um, I, I do apologize that this element we're gonna um, slightly spoil. But I mean the, the the fate of the baby isn't really dealt with until like the very last scene. 
Right. And and then all the stuff about um, about blood quantum. None of the characters use that terminology. Like it's not a part of the governance of their uh, of the of the survivor um, communities. Right. So it just seems like the the movie in its premise, in its title, in its opening quote, it seems to like imply that it's going to be about these things. And in the narrative, I just didn't get that. Uh, there's something a little bit undercooked about it in in terms of that theory. I feel like there's there's points in this movie where I'm <laughs> the lack of exposition is refreshing, but there's also points in which it can be a little frustrating. So I really like the way we don't get any boring exposition to sort of, Joss is my ex, we had a kid together, I had a kid with another person. No one needs to know that. It doesn't matter. We just know that Joss and Trailer share Joseph as a kid, and they are no longer together. So I think there's points that I'm refreshed by the lack of exposition, because I hate sloppy exposition. But you're right, there are some there are some breaches in information that you either can fill in on your own, or you just don't, it doesn't get filled in until you're reading supplementary um, reviews or information about the film. For me, it got in the way more than I was able to uh, to just go with it. Because it was a question that was always on my mind, is like, how does this theme play into the narrative? Another question I had was, why is it set in 1981? Maybe there's a, you want it to be pre the world knows everything. Like, you don't know how far that this plague has gone. You know that there's a bridge, and it feels like in a way that that bridge is going to contain it in some way? I mean, I realize that the salmon are zombies, but do you think that if the world was 2018, then then everyone would know about the plague? And if you're doing it in 1981, you know it's contained in this community, and it could be just the no one can go over the bridge. And then it's just this community, or... I don't know. I mean, it feels like it's a deliberate choice to set it in 1981. You could have just said, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's been a lot of horror movies that are set in the 80s, which I think is a kind of a retro... I think it justifies a retro feel in terms of um, the cheapness or, the, or their music choices or, yeah, the limitations in technology. So I think those... Uh, I could understand other filmmakers uh, making that choice. I don't, I don't know. I, I thought that it was set in 81 or 91 or 2001. It didn't really make a difference to me. I understand that it's an isolated community. I understand that I know that when a zombie outbreak happens, the things that you take for granted, like technology, um, the way that you connect with the world, those, um, those fall away. Uh, there was uh, like 28 days later that happened. When did that come out? In the 2000s or in the 90s? Oh boy! boy I say early aughts. Okay, but I mean that was in that was set in those contemporary times, but again the devastation of 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 that plague, um, just decimating the population, uh, technology wasn't um, something that you could take advantage of, right? So I, I so I don't I so when it comes to zombies, I'm not sure if it has to be set in 1981. Well, an interesting when the when chief when the sheriff trailer goes to see the domestic abuse or the domestic um, dispute that's happening. The guy that he meets who's super high um, 
says no one will let us into their house to use their phone. So this is a community that someone wouldn't even have a landline. Um, and I do have to share this quote. So the sheriff is just angry because I think this guy's high all the time and there's always shit going on. So he says, you're high cocksucking fuckface, which I think is a really effective insult. Uh, cocksucking fuckface? A little bit redundant, isn't it? <laughs> I found and that scene, you know the scene I'm talking about, was unbelievable. I have never seen anything that gruesome before. Just remind me what we're... Uh, uh, when the wife comes out. When the wife oh, yes. comes in. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, pretty dark. And I don't think anyone's ever done that sort of thing before. Mm. Um, okay. Back to my question about 1981. I did mm-hmm. find this, that the, the, the Canada's Constitution Act didn't, wasn't completed until 1982. Right? Oh. Right, and and I, yeah, this is not concrete for me. I'm 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 kind of reaching as well. But, um, so Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982 provides constitutional protection to the Aboriginal and treaty rights of Aboriginal peoples in Canada. So I found I found that line mm-hmm. relating to the 1982 uh, Constitution Act, but I found uh, an article on CBC that said in the fall of 1981, there was considerable opposition to Pierre Trudeau's planned constitutional patriotism. Uh, Norton Nash was reporting um, that November 19th, 1981, um, it's been just just an incredible day in Ottawa. Nobody seems happy with the constitutional resolution. So it it, it seemed like as Canada was pushing toward its uh, constitution, Something the thing that was missing was indigenous and treaty rights, and so there was uh, there was protests around that time. Uh, demonstrations included a giant march on Ottawa's Par- Parliament Hill. In Edmonton, more than five thousand people uh, rallied at an arena and then marched on the provincial legislature. Wow. In in the in the winter weather. Really. So there was um, yeah. So so this was an issue as uh, Canada was forming its constitution, um, and. Uh, it seems like it was addressed somehow in the finished document in 82, but I wonder if, well, I, I wondered if uh, that was part of the um, choice of 1981. It was, it was a time when, when Aboriginal rights hadn't been uh, put into, uh, into, the, into, into the document. Uh, again, the movie doesn't really address it, so I, I don't know if that is right. uh, the relevant well, point. One of the things I was reading about Barnaby um, is that he asked all of his cast to watch an Alanis Obamsawin documentary, not the one that we've talked about on the podcast, but another documentary that, I'm sorry, I wish I could remember the name of it, but I think he wanted to put maybe what was happening with the Charter into context for the cast who are different generations and different ages and from different countries to say, this is what was happening with the Canadian government and Indigenous peoples at this time. So maybe, again, it's not something that's obvious to us, but it seems like he took the effort to illustrate that with the cast so that they would have a historical context for what was going on, maybe. 
Yeah, it makes sense to to give people to give his actor uh, that perspective if if they're playing characters of that time. It just somehow it doesn't didn't didn't come across on the screen for me though. So it just seems like the the legacies of the legacy of racist law was something that the movie intended to address in its um, in its formulation, but uh, I guess it it's, it just isn't in there in the final product. Like when the when the community. When the Aboriginal community um, of survivors, they they have to uh, consider whether to take in other survivors who are non-Aboriginal. Um, there's a bit of a discussion about uh, about who they should uh, trust to to come in, um, but it isn't framed as it isn't framed in terms of blood quantum. It's framed as uh, just that you know they they look like they couldn't take care of themselves. They probably have been bitten. They you know um, so. Again, just a missed opportunity to uh, to bring in that uh, that perspective. Looking back at the beginning, did you did I thought the trailer wasn't really freaked out when he saw the uh, zombie dog and salmon. Like he just seemed to handle it very professionally, as if this is a thing that he always deals with. No, you're right. He's just like this is the fish thing spooked him because he said those fish are gutted. How are they still flopping around? Then the dog gets reanimated, and he's just like. Let's light a fire. Let's burn it up. Yeah. It's, Without just, questioning how things could become reanimated. He's just like, I'm going to take care of this and then get, carry on with my day. Right. Instead of like, I need to call the scientists or right. the university or, you know, uh, I need to get on the, the some kind of a public address system. It's just like, meh, we'll deal with this now. And I have to, I still have to pick up my kid from the jail. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I was reading about uh, the plot synopsis on Wiki, on Wikimedia, um, this line came up, and I just wanted to read it to you, because I don't remember this happening, or I don't remember it the same way. But uh, it said, "Okay, at Lysol's shelter away from the compound, Joseph finds a now zombified Lilith chewing on the severed penis of Lysol. Joseph and Lysol drive back to the compound with Lilith in restraints. Did that happen?" Uh, I read that this morning and thought, oh, that's an error. That that didn't happen. I don't think that happened. I don't think that happened. Okay. And how would you drive back if you were... If you'd been yeah. castrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just seems like this weird thing that uh, that's on the wiki page for this uh, movie. Um, that's a bit inaccurate. I wonder if it was like derived from an early draft. Uh, oh, maybe. That information and then, mm-hmm. and then no one corrected it. Yeah, I can confirm that I don't recall that happening okay. either. <laughs> Not a definitive answer, but I don't recall that happening either. I, I think you can enjoy it on the level of a zombie film, on the level of a horror film and action film, for the most part. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, I wouldn't say that it, it's uh, particularly fresh in its, in its approach, but it's, it's certainly competent, and, uh, and you can appreciate the, uh, the splatter effects. And there were some thrills, like when they, is it a gas station that they pull into and they're trying to see if there's more Zeds in there. And it was a, and the dad character just, shing, 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 just beheads a whole bunch of people and he's kicking ass and taking names. Like there were real thrills, I thought, because I did think that there was jeopardy. Because just because you can't get zombified doesn't mean you're not gonna die at the hands of the zombies. They will just eat you and then you're gone. So I felt that there was real jeopardy and a few of the reviews talked about slightly wooden acting, and it's not the first time on a 
podcast about Canadian films that we've talked about that, but I didn't feel that uh, I didn't feel the acting was was wooden. Mm-hmm. There was um, with Jess, the wife. The first, yeah. the first scene. The first scene. Yeah. I, I was wondering if her voice was dubbed in it later, because it just it seemed a little bit out of place with the performance. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a different movie, just uh, just as a way of getting around something. But uh, you've seen Predator. Uh, yeah. Okay. I ain't got time to bleed. In Predator. <laughs> <laughs> the body. <laughs> um, in Predator. When we will, we've whittled down the uh, the team to just a couple of survivors, but they're, they're trying to get to the chopper. And then Billy turns around, and he decides he's going to face off with the predator with his machete. It's Billy, right? Oh, I don't remember the characters' names at this point. Yeah. Well, actually, incidentally, it's the Aboriginal character, right? The uh, oh, right? he's one of the last. He's one of the um, the, the last three or so and uh to buy the group some time he decides to face off with the predator um it's like he knows he's going to sacrifice himself but this is what he needs to do for the team so um when i think of that moment and i think of movies that kind of steal that moment blood quantum kind of steals that moment and i just didn't know if it was necessary it just it seemed to when that happens... Like when a character is sacrificed? When a character makes the noble sacrifice. Gotcha. Okay. It just didn't feel like it was necessary. I have to agree with you. Yeah. I felt the same way. But it seems like it's in this kind of a movie, it's a moment that you have. And is, it, is there something to be said for subverting expectations? You expect heroes and heroines to, to make it to the end and make it to the end of the third act. Are you subverting expectations by not allowing that to happen? You know... A la yeah. Hitchcock and Psycho, surprising us. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy being surprised. I enjoy when my expectations um, aren't fulfilled. Um, or not enjoy, but, you know, it's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so I wish, you know, that moment could have been a bit fresher or, or had some justification to it. Um, another thing, um, another moment that is stolen from other movies, like, um, like do you remember in Aliens? Uh, the Paul Reiser character, he's, uh, you discover he's actually, his first interest is for the corporation. Mm-hmm. And he's willing to sacrifice the whole team if it means he can get a specimen back. So that, that's sort of like you, the, the person who you trust, who's part of the team, but he's actually not got the team's interests at heart. Right. Um, when that moment happens in, the, in Blood Quantum, I also was like thinking, where did this come from? Like this character, I didn't peg this way. Right. Did that stick out for you as a moment that like didn't fit it, with what was hap- what had it, happened? Yeah, previously? it didn't totally line up. I think I liked his characterization and I appreciated his anger. Um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't quite buy how that narrative played out. You're, thank you for uh, just giving me space to point out some nitpicks, Chris. <laughs> There's... <laughs> You're, you probably are itching to say something positive about the movie, though. Um, well, I just really appreciate something that I haven't seen before. And I think it's very novel still, even in 2020 and living in Canada, to have an entirely, almost entirely Indigenous cast. And I like the Romero-esque 
you know, social, socio-political bent that you're taking colonialism and our smallpox blankets and you're turning it on its head to say, now we are the people that can survive and you guys are doomed, which in many ways seems just. Um, so I just really appreciate that these are voices I haven't heard before. I think Barnaby took a $4.5 million budget, which is peanuts, and made it look pretty goddamn slick. That does not look like a $4.5 million. Um, I mean, it feels like a B movie, which I love B movies, but um, I think he put a lot of, there's a lot of value in that $4.5 million. I read somewhere it was 5.5. Oh, I read it was four. It is the largest uh, indigenous production in Canada. So whatever Barnaby's final... uh, price tag was it was the biggest indigenous um creative project Mm -hmm. that canada's ever seen when we're talking about movies it seems like um like splitting hairs when you say 4.5 million or 5.5 million (laughs) but i think when you're talking about canadian movies and especially indigenous canadian movies a million Million dollars is a lot yeah yeah but certainly it's uh it's a big budget for uh what he was allowed to do yeah i think we when alexander and i talked about exotica I had read somewhere at that time, Exotica, which was in the early 90s, uh, made for $2 million. I think that was like the highest budgeted Canadian production at wow. the time. So. so again, I appreciate that uh, it doesn't look like a lot of other things that I've seen. And I really hope that we get to see more Indigenous faces and voices. And yeah, I'm just... You know, the election, the pandemic, I just kind of had it with white people, and I'm (laughs) really hungry to hear other stories and to see other faces on small and large screens. Well, I appreciate that perspective, and I agree that representation counts for something. As a simple entertainment, I like Blood Quantum as much as I like most zombie movies, which is to say kind of limited is kind of in a limited way. Um, the setup of the situation, the establishment of the threat, the logic of the biological spread, um, those tend to be things that are unique uh, from film to film. Um, how people react is always interesting because it sets the tone. Uh, are we supposed to take this seriously? Is it a parable of our times? Is it social commentary? Or is it just like action horror fantasy? I tend to lose interest if the logic of the world doesn't make much sense or the character's actions don't, um, they aren't consistent, for example. With Blood Quantum, there's, uh, there's a bit too much implied or, or assumed um, that's addressed off-screen for me. Like how the characters make sense of the situation, um, that, that, that question of, uh, of uh, the purity of Aboriginal blood and how it offers immunity. So there's like this, this promise of a social-political statement through, uh, through genre entertainment that isn't realized. The situation is loaded with meaning from uh, the fishing fishing rights and uh, the indigenous uh, path to self-government in that region. But it doesn't coalesce into like a takeaway message for me. It, the, the zombie movie made by and starring First Nations people seems like a very superficial way to remember Blood Quantum. I wish it could have been something that was more like the horror movie about the generation's long fight for indigenous rights. Do you worry, though, that that a level of earnestness will interrupt a good B-horror movie? Or you think it doesn't have to be earnest to be effective? I don't think it has to be, I don't think it has to be earnest, but then I think earnestness doesn't necessarily detract. But you just don't want it to be pedantic. 
But you you cited Romero, mm-hmm. and the social commentary is pretty well regarded. Uh, it's it's yes. is recognized right. first, and it's respected as a perspective, right. as an artistic statement. Right. Right. No one says like, "Oh my God, get off your high horse about consumerism." They say like, <laughs> "This is this is the this is the horror movie that looks at our zombie behavior." Right. Yeah. Uh, j- just as an aside. Uh, when we're recording this, it is the end of um, American Thanksgiving, and uh, someone that I know hit the malls on Friday, and though they hadn't seen Dawn of the Dead, they described what the mall looked like, uh, and you can imagine it looking like zombies. Everyone's masked up. They're all kind of in a COVID fugue state, just walking like zombies through the mall. Must consume. Not brains, just cheap shit that nobody needs so yay Romero he knew that 50 years ago <laughs> this sort of blind consumerism is just our zombies not consuming brains but cheap goods and that that message holds that yeah yeah so will this message if any message in blood quantum will it hold um, a generation from now like right. what did we get out of it right? Right. another thing about um, uh, the filming of, of Blood Quantum in uh, Listagooch um, so I also found that in 1993 it was like a hot point it was a hot spot in the uh, in the fight for um, fishing rights Aboriginal fishing rights like there was a lot of action from the Canadian government uh, the fisheries department the coast guard harassing um, indigenous uh, fishermen. Well, I'm glad that's behind us historically. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it, it, it eventually, um, the, uh, the First Nations government in Lusagouche took over the management of the salmon fishery in Restagouche River. And it wasn't through a negotiation with, uh, with the government. It was an assertion of indigenous rights. Like they, they, just, they, they pretty much took it over and said, like, we have a right to, uh, to control this commodity in our lands. Um, so it was, uh, um, that was in 1993, um, earlier this year in 2020, there was the, uh, rail blockades, um, in and around Kanawaki, which is, which is in that area as well in Quebec. Um, so it just like, this is an area which is a bit of a political hotspot in terms of indigenous activism. And I think we certainly have seen that in a number of Alanis Obamsawin's documentaries as well. Yeah. Um, so, again, it's just like there is all this background, which I think is informing what Jeff Barnby wants to say, and it's just that he doesn't quite say it on screen. What if you know those things going into it? it does it feel disappointing that if you don't know those things, you, you're not going to get any depth in the narrative? Well, I think or, it depends what you go into it okay. with. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go into it with, uh, if you're going into it just because you want a zombie movie, um, I guess you're going to be satisfied or frustrated based on how it respects uh, what you want in a zombie movie. If you go into it wanting some sort of a a political statement or some sort of a social um, parable, then I guess, uh, like me, you'll be a little bit frustrated that that it doesn't come across. So you had mentioned earlier in our pre-recorded before we were recording chats about District 9 Mm -hmm. and that was one of the films that you um, would use to compare this to and you felt like on a political level 
it was very clear what this um, what the metaphors were. Um, I suggested District Nine as um, as as something we'd consider for a comparison. Um, in that it is also a movie that seems preloaded with expectations about what it could say politically right and doesn't i'm actually not a fan of district 9 i think it really? i think it falls short i think it, it oh. i think people i think people give it a pass for what it potentially could say when it doesn't say that oh i found it very satisfying okay many people do I, and you also have to come to that movie with an understanding of south african history as well I mean, you could just watch it as a sci-fi movie, but it's richer if you know about apartheid. Yeah, and and I guess and also you you might appreciate it more if you were well informed that being splashed with motor oil could turn you black. Huh, I don't recall that in the uh, in the film. My my problem with that is just like the the fantasy of racism of like it's it's like it's it's black like Vic or. Sorry, that's the SCTV parody. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. Are you talking about the Howard Griffin book, Black Like Me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just talking about Joe Flaherty in gotcha. blackface. <laughs> Would you like to use, because I think, I think zombie movies may be uh, a bit too direct in terms of comparison. Let's use District 9. Sure. And so here's an example where how you feel about District 9 is very different from how I feel about District 9. But what we're doing is comparing blood quantum against um, against that standard. So uh, so for me, uh, blood quantum is a plus one over District 9. I would say it's minus one compared to District 9. Okay. And I do want to let people know that Barnaby's first feature, Rhymes for Young Ghouls, is available for free on CBC Gem streaming platform, as are a lot of Canadian movies. So... There is a deep treasure of Canadian films uh, available for free through CBC Gem. Not a sponsor, but we should not check a sponsor. It, yeah, but we'll check it out on Chris's recommendation. Chris, thanks for talking with me. It was really nice to see your face again and uh, talk films. Maybe we'll do it again in another forty-seven years. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we'll do it again twenty-eight days later. <laughs> <laughs>